Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. And unbelievably, this is now the 18th Parsha since the beginning of the year. It's the Parsha called Mishpatim. Mishpatim means rules or judgments. And our topic for today is, is Judaism or the Torah rational? Is Judaism rational or is it irrational? And how can we reconcile the rational and the irrational within the Torah and within life in general? And how do we face things that don't make sense in life? And how do we embrace our own irrationality? These are the questions that we want to pose going into tonight's class. And the quick answer, the short answer to the question, is Judaism rational or irrational? is that it's both. It's a bit of both. There's an element of rationality and an element of irrationality. So the answer is yes and no to the question if Judaism is irrational or rational. The answer is yes and no. So some people, when they hear that Judaism is rational, they, they become very calm. Uh, it calms them down to know that the Torah makes sense, that everything can be explained in rational terms that ultimately even the strangest things in the Torah, you can find a rational explanation for them. So when they hear, yes, the Torah is rational, they, they feel at ease. They feel that they're safe, in a safe space, and, and no surprises, no alarms and no surprises. And, but then when they hear, but it's also irrational, then they, 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 they lose their calmness and their sense of security, and they feel lost and they feel that maybe the Torah doesn't make sense, and they feel maybe it takes away from Judaism or the Torah, and they feel that maybe my whole faith in God and, and the Torah being God-given, I lose it, because if it's irrational, it becomes uh, human. And if it's human, it's not divine. That Godliness is, or God, has to be the, the most ultra-rational being in the world. So that's one type of person. One type of person really wants to believe that the Torah is ultimately extremely rational. It makes total sense when you explain it through and through. And when he uh, is, you know, stands before the idea that it may not all be rational, that there may be an element of irrationality in the Torah, it makes them feel unsafe and tense. Then there's another type of person, and I suspect that this is the type of person that's that's more, uh, you, you can find more of them in, in this forum right now. And for them, it's a bit like, it's, it's the opposite. When they hear that the Torah isn't all rational, that there's a mystical, irrational element in the Torah, they feel that they can breathe. They feel that the Torah is, and you're all nodding, as I suspected. And they feel that, wow, it's a, it's a break, because everything is too rational in life and we're bound up by rationality. And if it's all rational, then what's new? And where's God? If, it's, if it all, you know, comes into this, uh, enters the framework of, of rationality and, and coherent structures, and so where's, we need the surprise, we need the infinite element, we need the super rational. And, and sometimes for these people, even when they think about the Torah being also rational, that makes them nervous. They're nervous about the Torah being rational. So there are two types of person, that those who, who, who really 
want the rationality and those who really who don't really who let's say who who want the irrationality more and and the thing is that of course there are at least two kinds of irrationality there's what we can call a pre-intellectual irrationality and a post-intellectual irrationality or an irrationality that's higher uh, than the intellect, and the negative one would be an irrationality that's lower than the intellect. And and this is a concept that comes back again and again. We can find it in many, many different places in Kabbalah and Hasidut. And we want to explore this topic through this parsha, which, as I said, is Parshat Mishpatim. Now, let's just situate ourselves in the grand narrative of the Torah and where we are right now. We're coming out of Yitro, previous parsha, and we're coming into Mishpatim. And Yitro was the most, maybe the most dramatic parsha there is. It's the the heavens open, literally, and the Torah is given. We stand before the mount, before Mount Sinai, and Moshe ascends, and God descends. And there's this incredible supernatural event that's beyond anything similar in time and space. And it is never before and ever afterwards uh, has this an event like this uh, happened. And, and, you know, God revealed himself and he gave the Ten Commandments. And from this momentous, dramatic, melodramatic, you know, earth-shaking, um, event, we move to a parsha which is the most opposite in nature that we can imagine. It's a parsha that's full of a lot of little rules and details that are very, very, very human in nature. In fact, most of what the Torah has to tell us about human relations, the laws regarding human relations, whether we, what happens if we damage one another's property, and um, what happens when you, you, something is stolen and the thief is found, and and what does it mean to guard someone else's uh, property and different forms of uh, varieties of guards and degrees of responsibility, and what happens when you loan money and you get it back, and what happens if you hurt someone, and what happens if you find something that someone lost, and all of this is described in this parsha alongside some other important commandments, um, like the prohibition to eat dairy and flesh. It's also found here, one of them, it, it repeats several times, but this is the first time. And it goes, five out of the seven segments is just this long list of very tiny, very particular, very human, very earthly very mundane commands, many of which, in fact, most of which, um, make sense, and they, there's nothing mystical about them. They make, they obviously make, they, for sure they make sense in the context of the period of time that we're talking about. Today we don't have slaves, but in the context of slaves, a lot of things make sense. A lot of things that have to do with damaging property and loans and finding um, something that someone got lost that you need to return it, return it, and it's very rational. 
and it has to do with, you know, people trying to live peacefully with one another, and they need to be ordered, there need to be rules, and that's what he talks about. So the, it's almost like you fall from this amazing event of receiving the Torah in Mount Sinai to suddenly you're in a kind of, you know, you're studying law, and you're bombarded with all these commandments and details, and from this mystical, transcendent event, you suddenly find yourself, you know, before a law book, you know, which is full of laws and, you know, sub-laws and sub-clauses and, you know, in cases of, you know, and, and, and a lot of halacha, a lot of Jewish law comes out of this parasha and the commandments that he talks about. Now, the opening verse, we're talking here about the first segment of the parsha, and we're talking about the opening verse. And this is a time, I'm going to now just say and remark that I have to apologize for last week. If you were present last week, or you, or you watched the YouTube class, or you heard the podcast, and then you opened the Torah, you know that I made a really big mistake last week. Last week, I didn't talk about the first segment. I made a mistake. I talked about the fourth segment. Some of you discovered this. The whole verse that I gave that we talked about last week that was, So you shall say to the house of Jacob and speak to the sons of Israel. I made a mistake. I opened the parsha. It was the fourth segment. And in my defense, it was the beginning of the story, of the part of the parsha that talks about receiving the Torah in Mount Sinai. But it wasn't the beginning of the parsha. Um, but, you know, there's. I'm sure there's, you know, the hand of providence was, you know, it, it comes through our mistakes as well. And Kabbalistically, by the way, the fourth segment corresponds to the sphere of Netzach. Netzach is just below Chesed. So the first and the fourth, they go together. It's one axis. And also now we're going to see there's a deep connection between the verse we spoke about before and what's going on here. So we wouldn't have had that if I had not made the mistake. And in fact, what we're going to talk about today, right, we're talking about rationality and irrationality. Mistakes are, they come from the irrational part of us. If I was perfectly rational, I would have been more careful. I would have read the Parsha more carefully. I would have read it several times. I wouldn't have rushed into preparing the shiur, you know, and getting excited about this verse and preparing this whole shiur and then only discovering afterwards that I made the mistake. And if, if I were perfectly rational, but which I'm not, and none of us are. And so it, the fact that I was irrational turned out to be, several people told me, I, I, not, I wrote, I don't remember if it was the English group or the, the Hebrew group, but I wrote to people, I, I apologize, I made the mistake. And people told me, don't worry, it was the, it was, I just had to hear that exact class this week. It was perfect that it came this week. It was just a class I needed to hear. So that's how providence works through our own mistakes and our own irrationality, or the irrational aspect of us. So now let's connect all this to what's going on in this parsha. Now I, you know, I double checked. After you do a mistake, that's another good thing about mistakes, is that at least for some time afterwards, you're extra careful not to do it again. You probably do some other mistakes that you're not ready for, but the same mistake you know that for a while now, maybe for a long while, hopefully, 
That mistake you won't repeat. So I double-checked. I'm really talking about the first verse of this parsha. And the first verse of this parsha is, ve'ele ha'mishpatim asher tasim lifnehem, which translates, these, or rather, and these are the rules, or judgments, that's a more literal translation, that you shall set before them. It starts with the the Hebrew letter Vav, which means and. It's the, the word that connects. And these are the rules or judgments that you shall set before them. Rashi, main commentator on the Torah, says, uh, when you have this word, and he quotes the sages, Chazal, whenever it says and these, as opposed to just these, it means that you're adding to what came before and you're not saying it's opposite. Whenever it says just these, in Hebrew, ele, it means these rather than those. Not those, but these. When it just says ele. But when it says ve'ele, it means those and these also. And they're part of the same group. So although one parsha ended, and another parsha is beginning, and a whole week passes, and although the nature of the two parsha is completely different, as I said before, that we're coming from this amazing mystical event, and we suddenly find ourselves in this, what we could experience, we may experience, if we don't go deep enough, as a kind of boring law, you know, class that teaches that, that bombards us with a lot of little rules and details. Although the, the atmosphere and the, the content is completely different, it's one thing, and it all happens through this one letter that opens this parsha, the Vav, the conjoining letter that means and. In, in English it's a word, in Hebrew it's just one letter, and it connects everything. So, why, how does this connect to the mistake I made last week? Because last week uh, we spoke about the verse, so you shall say to the house of Jacob and speak to the sons of Israel. And we said that it's uh, the, the feminine and the masculine aspects of the Torah. And we said that the feminine is addressed, in, is, is soft-spoken, lashon raka. And for the men, it's dvarim kashim kegidim. It's words that are as hard or harsh, and we didn't, I don't think we used that expression, but the original expression is as hard as sinews, as the sinews of the, that connect the muscles and the bones, they're extremely tough, it's very hard to cut them, and, and there may be, so we would think that the toughest is the bones, but in many ways it's the sinews, the bones you can break, but the sinews, because they're they're, uh, they stretch, they're the hardest to cut or to break. The bones you can break, the flesh you can cut, but the sinews are really, in many ways, the toughest. So it says that the feminine is aspect of the Torah is soft-spoken, and the masculine aspect of the Torah is as tough as sinews. So, in a way, that verse, which came in the, relatively speaking, in the middle of the previous parasha, right, the fourth segment, reflects the transition from that parsha to this parsha. Because that parsha, in a way, was like the feminine aspect of the Torah. It was soft-spoken in the sense 
that it was very spiritual and mystical and and very simple in a way. There was the mountain, there was the fog, there was the lightning, there was the divine revelation, there were just the Ten Commandments. And just hearing the Ten Commandments is like the headlines. We spoke about the headlines, the heads of things, just the broad, basic, spiritual, abstract ideas. So in a way, that parsha was more feminine in relation to this parsha. It was just a broad idea of, you know, I am your God, don't have uh, other gods other than me, and don't carry my name in vain, and observe the, the Sabbath, and respect your parents, and all the Ten Commandments. It was very general, very simple, and and it wasn't soft-spoken, right, God? It was the, the voice. The voices were booming, but it was soft-spoken in the sense that it was general concepts that are easy to to take in. But moving to this parsha, it's moving to the so you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now it becomes tougher, harsher, much more demanding. It's a far tougher parsha to get through, to understand. And to, and to learn all these little details, and they're far more demanding. It's not Ten Commandments, it's dozens and dozens of commandments, all, uh, you know, uh, put together, condensed, into this one small parsha. So that's just connecting uh, this transition to, uh, to last week, and to, and to understand, to fully appreciate the traumatic transition. But the but although it's a, it's a traumatic transition, as I said, there's this vav, this and word in Hebrew, ve'ele, which says it's all one. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the previous parasha and this parasha are two separate things. They go together. And let, now let's see how this breaks into some more details. Rashi continues. First he said, it's, it's all one. It's not these rather than those, it's these on top of those. And now he's saying, he's giving two explanations for why the Torah makes it clear that it's one continuum and not a, you know, a quantum leap or a jump from one spiritual, you know, space to another. So, he, the first explanation is, he says, just as the as the things you heard in the previous parasha came from Mount Sinai, you heard them when there was this lightning and the and the thunder and the voice of God and the Ten Commandments. You know, so all, so many people in the world say, "Oh, the Ten Commandments, they're so amazing and they're the Word of God and we believe in the Word of God." But then when you ask them about Mishpatim, they say, I'm not even sure what's written there, or I'm sure, but I don't understand it so much, or I understand it, but I find it very hard. You suddenly have this Hebrew slave, and you have this maidservant, you have all these things, it's very complicated to go into, and it sounds very strange. It doesn't sound as, you know, universal and broad, and it sounds much more particular. And But, but says Rashi, again, it's all based on the sages, he says, everything you're going to read in this parsha." It's also from Sinai. It's just as divine, just as holy, just as eternal, just as binding as the Ten Commandments. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the other one, because it, when you heard it from Sinai, it's somehow holier or more binding or more important than all these little tiny little rules that you're going to get now. It's all from Sinai. You should imagine that you can, you can hear God's voice 
throughout this parasha, just as you imagined hearing him in the previous parasha. So that's the first explanation. Second explanation Rashi gives is the, the, the very last thing in the previous parasha was the description of the altar and climbing up the altar. And now we're talking about all these uh, rules that who is in charge of them? It's the judges, the court. Right? This parsha is a parsha for for judges and lawyers, right? It's uh you're we're studying law. So it says, Rashi says, why was it put together with this ve'ele and these, you know, putting it all together? It's to tell us that the grand court, the grand Jewish court, which is called the Sanhedrin, which existed during the time of the temple, and the restoration of which is part of the vision of redemption according to the Torah. Right, We, we haven't had it for a long time, but it's one of the elements of a full redemption is that the Sanhedrin is restored, the grand Jewish court. The Sanhedrin needs to be at the temple. Again, you would think that the temple is one realm, the realm of holiness, the realm of giving sacrifices and praying and connecting to God. And then there's another place, maybe in another part of Jerusalem or in another part of the, of the country, who knows. Um, you should have the court. But you're wrong. The court needs to, as it was indeed, the court needs to be at the temple in order to teach us that our connection to God and our own mundane earthly rulings of, you know, people fighting and having disagreements and coming to the judge and trying to resolve their issues, it's not two disconnected realms. It absolutely goes together. God is in the human realm of, of you know, human disputes, and, and the human realm is also at the temple. It's part of Beit HaMikdash. It's part of connecting to God. It's all one. Now, in a way, all of this, all of this points at a that the transition from the previous parasha to this parasha is all about transitioning from the realm of the mystical and the irrational, the connection to the transcendent God, to the realm of the irrational and the human and the things that make sense. And in fact, we can add two more things. Rashi gave us two two reasons for this. Um, uh, connection that's that's made between the two uh, the two portions, and we can add two more things that they don't refer to the word ve'ele to the word that connects, but they do refer to the fact that this parsha or going into this parsha, we're talking about uh, the the boundary between the rational and the irrational. So the the next thing we need to add is the it says these and these are the rules you shall set before them lifnehem this word before them also has two polar opposite meanings one meaning which appears in the talmud is that lifnehem means you need to explain all the various facets of all these laws until they're fully understood. Set before them means you need to set it on the table until everything is clear, all the details. It's like setting a table. In fact, this is the source 
for the term Shulchan Aruch, right? The, the most basic book of Jewish law is the Shulchan Aruch, which means the set table, the table that's been set with all the knives and forks and plates and everything is, and all the, all the, all, everything you're eating, it's all very clear. You can understand everything. That's the idea of the Shulchan Aruch. So it starts with the sages with explaining this word here, Lifnehem, before them. It also in Hebrew, the word Lifnehem refers to Panim, and Panim means facets. Open up, unfold all the facets, and lay it out before your students like a Shulchan Aruch, like a table that's completely set. It's not in the cupboard, and it's not in, you know, stacks. It's all laid out before you, and you have to make sure your student understands everything. And this is how Torah is learned. Torah is learned in a very rational way. You can't just say, well, I think I get the gist of it, but let's move on to the next page. This is not serious Torah study. Torah study is everything you need to figure it out. And it has to be laid out before you, especially when you're, when you're getting to the bottom line, which is halacha. But even before that, as you're learning, you need to understand. And maybe there's a point in which you say, well, I can only understand it so much, and here I can't. But that's not because you didn't try. It's because you tried, and at some point you give up. And in the Talmud, it happened in several places, that we end up in a situation when we say, teku, balance, we can't find the answer, and let's move on. But again, it's after doing everything in your power to try and understand it. So that's one interpretation for lifnehem, before them. Totally opposite interpretation. Lifnehem, we just said it refers to facets. It also refers to the inner dimension of things, the pnimiyut, to go pnima, to go inside. So the Alter Rebbe of Chabad, first Rebbe of Chabad, he says that the, these rules, these mishpatim that we need to study, it needs to, we need to study them lifnehem to get all the way to the most to the deepest mystical meaning of them, which is the inherently uh, irrational or or something that you can't fathom, an unfathomable aspect of them. If you just study them rationally, you don't get them, says the Alter Rebbe. You need to go all the way to their inner dimension, to the level of the hidden of the, the secrets of the Torah, the hidden level of the Torah, and then, which activates the inner uh, level within you, the inner aspect, the higher mystical, uh, in, internal, you know, aspects within you, the hidden level within you. There's the revealed level of the Torah and the hidden level of the Torah. And here you have to learn these rules also on the hidden level, and that activates the hidden level within you. So, one perush, one interpretation says, Lifnehem means you need to fully understand it. And the other says, Lifnehem, you have to get to the Pnimiyu, to the inner dimension of things, which is inherently unfathomable. And the Yerushalmi Talmud, by the way, which tends to be a little bit more uh, obscure, says that the word samti, uh, that the, uh, sorry, how does the, the verse went, tasim uh, lifnehem, tasim, set before them, or put, be, placed before them, this particular word tasim is connected to the word 
tasima and samui hidden. Tasim lifneihem. There's a there's an an element of hiddenness within this verse. So that's another very strong uh, um, uh, evidence that we're talking about connecting the rational with the irrational, the revealed with the hidden. Again, on the surface, this parsha is the most rational. We're coming out of the most mystical portion and we're going into the most rational portion. This is what happens in these two parshas. You can't find it. It can't get more, you know, dramatic or clear-cut than these two parashat. It was it, the most mystical event in the history of the world. God speaking in His own voice and giving us the Ten Commandments. And moving to the most rational parasha, which is all rules that most of them are need and can be understood very rationally. To the point that you, we can even ask, why does the Torah tell us this? But it's but but the verse itself, the way it's presented, you can read it that even these laws, you need to go into the inner level of them and get to the. There has to be some irrational kernel within the rational laws. Now the final thing that brings this, you know, par- this paradox to to its maybe it's the its most extreme form, is as I said when you're reading the Talmud and Halacha. There's so much to say about this parasha because it's all the rules and all the details and, and each one of them opens up a whole topic in Jewish law. And then you open the Zohar. Now the Zohar is always mystical. It's a mystical book. It's a book of Kabbalah. It always takes whatever is going on in the parasha and and suddenly tells us that we have no idea what we're talking about. It's all souls and you know, hallways in upper realms and sefirot combining and angels and demons and all kinds of amazing things. But in this parsha, it goes fully all the way and it talks about reincarnation. Reincarnation, the secret of reincarnation is maybe the most extreme idea in Kabbalah. It's not just that uh, there's hidden realms and hidden energies and lights and you know all kinds of you know mysterious forces at work behind nature, which is the Zohar is always about. It's saying that there are within the Kabbalah itself. This is the most one of the most mysterious parts of the Zohar. So the Zohar takes the most rational parsha and decides to place on that parsha the the deepest, most obscure ideas in Kabbalah itself. And there's this mysterious figure called Saba the Mishpatim, the old man of the Mishpatim portion. He appears in the beginning of this parsha. There are two characters in the Zohar that on first glance appear to be simpletons, but then they turn out to be the most incredible mystics. One is the Yenuka, the child, that everyone thinks is a little child who knows nothing, he's skipping school, but he turns out to be this prophetic figure, he knows everything, and he teaches all the grandmasters, he teaches them things they never heard before. And the second figure is this figure right here, Saba de Mishpatim, who's this old mer- traveling salesman, and he appears like a simpleton, he appears to be speaking nonsense. And, and he tells riddles, and he asked the great sages of the Kabbalah riddles that they can't answer, and they don't answer. 
within this parsha. And then you have many answers that have been given over the history of interpretations for this segment of the Zohar. Now, just to get a, a feeling for this, the word in the Hebrew word for reincarnation is Gilgul. Gilgul is connected to the Hebrew word Gulgolet, which means skull. What's the connection between reincarnation and the skull? The idea is that the physical anatomy reflects the spiritual anatomy. And the skull is a physical manifestation or reflection of the surrounding lights, the so-called aura, or surrounding lights, that is our superconscious. Our, our body does not contain the superconscious, but it's because it's, it's not physical. But it's reflected in the fact that there is something above the brain, and that is the Gulgolit. So the Gulgolit is like a metaphor or a symbol for the superconscious crown. And that's where reincarnation comes from. Reincarnation comes from the, the soul root, because we don't remember our past lives. And, and if you hear, you meet people who claim that they do know their past lives, you, you'd better stay away, because most of the chances are that they're either lying to you, or they're, they're just uh, uh, irresponsibly using what they can see. Because today we don't have people who are responsible enough to really know this, and be responsible in the way they talk about this. So you have some people who may see things, but they have no idea what they're doing. And if they don't see things, it's even worse, of course. So, anyway, the point is that the reincarnation comes from something that's above our intellect. And it's also above our intellect to understand what it means. And we're going to tell a reincarnation story at the end of this class, uh, just to demonstrate this. Now we want to get to the point. So we have all these ideas that show us that we're moving from the, from the mystical or the irrational to the rational. Now comes the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, the last Rebbe. We spoke about the first Rebbe of Chabad, now we're going to the seventh and last Rebbe of Chabad, the, most, the famous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says, really, a very, very fundamental tenet of Judaism. He learns it from this parasha and from the, the, the opening of this parasha and, and this, this connection that's made in the opening verse that moves us from the previous parasha to this parasha. He says, the reason that this connection is made, that it says ve'ele and these in order to put them all together and bind the irrational with the rational, the mystical with the mundane, you know, um, rules that we have to follow, is so that we remember always that when, whenever we're fulfilling the rational commandments of the Torah, we should always remember that deep down there's also a mystical, divine, infinite, eternal, unfathomable element to them. And not only that, but we should fulfill them not because they make sense, but despite the effect that they make sense. Because if it's if we're doing the if we're, fulfill, if we're fulfilling them because they make sense, then we're doing it because it, 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 it has to do, it's all about us, about our own understanding, 
and we're just serving God because it makes sense to us, because it, we, we see that it makes the world a better place, and that's it. But it says that then you're not connecting to God. Then the Torah becomes something that has nothing to do with God. It's just a clever book. But the whole idea is that the Torah is the embodiment of God itself, or a connection to God itself, Himself. So you need to observe those commandments as if they make absolutely no sense. You're doing it above reason. You're just accepting the yoke of, of commandments of God, and you say, I'm going with you, and, and just as I'm, I'm, whatever you tell me to do, I'm doing. And also, they make sense. And as we said before, we, you need to learn them. You need to learn them well, and you, you need to learn them with your intellect. But when you get to the moment of fulfilling them, even if it's the things that make absolute sense, you need to do it as if it doesn't make sense, as if you're just jumping into the unknown. And you're doing something that you have no idea what it means, but, it's, but God told you. Again, despite the fact that it makes absolute sense. This is a very, very powerful statement. He points, by the way, to the fact that one of the reasons we know this is that the two parsha, the two portions, are really interincluded? A term we use many times to talk when you take two things and you combine them. There's you, you find in the end that there's a, a tiny element of the first in the second and a tiny element of the second in the first. So he says, how do we see it here? In the Ten Commandments, some of the commandments are absolutely mystical and irrational, a faith in God and 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 not speaking His name for in vain and observing the Sabbath, these aren't rational, practic pragmatic laws. But then you have, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, and every, every you know, society has those rules. So that was a kind of hint that you need to take the mystical energy and light that you have in the mystical commandments, and infuse the rational commandments with that kind of energy and light, and faith. That's why they're both included in the Ten Commandments. And same goes here. Most of the commandments in this parasha make sense. But then you have some that don't, like eating uh, the prohibition to eat dairy products with, uh, with flesh products, with, with meat. You can't eat meat with dairy products together. It doesn't make sense. It's not rational. But that it just shows you that the Torah is, on purpose, it, it mixes them. It had one mystical uh, portion, but it had some rational things in it. And it, had, it has a very rational portion, and it, and it puts in some cryptic mystical commandments in it. You know, throws it in there to tell, to show us that for we that we we can tell the difference. This whole class is about telling the difference. But it, we should see it as though it's all mystical. It's all God revealing Himself and saying, "This is what I want." We can think about, let's say, do not kill, right? Lo tirtzach, do not kill, very simple commandment. Every No society in the world can exist without having such a rule. But the idea is that if you fulfill it because, it because it makes sense, because you say, well, I want to be alive, so I want other people not to kill me, so I'm going, in turn, not kill people, even if, even if I really want to. And that could happen. And But I'm not going to kill them, because then it... By, by observing that law, it would be observed in all directions. 
and then I would also be safe, and we would all be safe. And so I don't, I don't get to kill my enemies, but I get to be alive. And, uh, and, and now it makes sense. But this is just one very... Now God has nothing to do with it. So that's one level of the... That's, that's, that's a law that you can have in societies that their lawmakers have nothing to do with God, in which their courtroom is not within the temple. It's, it's in a different place. But in the Torah context, and by the way, this is the pshat of Lifnehem, before them, is you, the, 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 the pshat of the first verse is that it's, it's obligatory to go only to a Jewish courtroom, a Torah courtroom. That you can't go to a courtroom that doesn't follow the Torah's rules. Lifnehem, before them, and not before others, not before courtrooms that don't follow the Torah. So the idea is that here in this context, in this parasha, when we're talking about um, uh, observing the rational laws, we're talking about understanding them in some deeper way. That we're not just observing Lotir Tzach because it's pragmatic, because that maintains the order of society and the order of things, and otherwise you know, society would uh, break apart and we would return to the state of nature in which everyone is like like a wolf, like an animal to one another and so on and so forth. Because that's all rational. These are rational explanations for commandments. We observe it because there's also a mystical element here. Man was created in the image of God. When you kill another person, you're not just uh, hurting society or causing suffering, these are all very good reasons. But you're also, in some mystical way, hurting or damaging or diminishing the divine, the divine image in the world. This is another level. You're not doing it because it's something you understand, because it's pragmatic, because it maintains the order of, of, of civilization, but because there's something else in it which you don't really understand, and you go into it with the sense of not fully understanding it. So the, this is an extremely powerful message by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who of course lived in the 20th century, in the time in which many, many people, many Jews also, say that they are trying and believing and trying to convince themselves and others that the Torah is completely irrational that it's all irrational, and they call themselves rationalists. And they say that the Torah is absolutely rational, and everything in the Torah, I can explain it to you. And they, there's a whole, you know, full classes and books that are written to convince and demonstrate that everything in the Torah is rational. And the Rebbe recognized that this is eating away at the heart of what Torah observance is. The heart of Torah observance is that God is unfathomable and mysterious, and we need to connect to Him in a, in a, in, in a level that's irrational, that has to do with blind faith. We're going, why? Because. Because we're going. We're going for God, because this is the heart of our being. How do we know? We don't know. We believe. How do we know that the Torah is God's Word? You don't. There are things that convince you, things that cause you to, to connect to the Torah, and each one has his own story about the moment or moments in life in which he felt and realized or understood or in some way that the Torah 
isn't just a book and it's not just some uh, you know uh, compilation of, of human writings that have some wisdom in them and have some other things in them that he realized that beyond all this there's a divine origin to this that's our stories we have our stories of how we realize this or how it became you know a, a living uh, element in our lives that we that we experience this but ultimately going for the Torah and for God is something that if it's just rational then it's all about us as humans trying to figure out a good way to live and then you can also find some maybe some other systems that work just as well or better you could you could convince and it's well known, he quotes this as well, that the Yetzer the evil inclination, is very sophisticated. He would never just go and tell you, listen, let's do a, an Avera, let's do a, something that's forbidden, because he knows you wouldn't listen. So he tells you, um, let's read the Torah as, as rational, as completely rational. And then you say, that doesn't sound so bad. So then you go along and you read the Torah in a rational way. Then he tells you, you know, there are some other rational systems. And it's very interesting to compare them. So yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't sound so bad. So you go and follow those rational systems. Then he tells you, you know, those systems, they make a little bit, they're a bit more rational than this one. They make more sense. And you say, well, that, that's okay. God created rationality and the image of God is being rational, isn't it? So then you, you start going in that direction and, and then he gets you to, to, to transgress. And, and the, the Rebbe realized this very, very clearly. And his message was that rationalism is tempting because then it appears to give us an answer to the irrationality of the world. So many people are so irrational and they're doing things that are egoistic or short-sighted or, um, you know, they come out of their lowest urges and you want something higher than that. You want something that's not egoistical, that's not short-sighted, that doesn't come out of fulfilling your own des lower des base desires. And, the, and then the Torah seems higher than that, and, you know, something loftier than that, and, and then it uplifts you. But you don't realize that at the same time, it also stops you from going even further up into the super-rational irrationality, which is the level of faith, of connecting to God in a, in a, an, on, a, on a level that has to do with the root of my soul craving a connection to God. And this is the heart of Judaism. It's this mystical bond between creation and, the crea and its creator, and a created being and his creator, an invisible, unfathomable creator. That's, that's ultimately infinite and eternal and therefore can never be rationalized. And if you lose sight of that, then you may feel that you have, you're holding on to something that's very, again, makes sense and it's, and it, you, civilizations can be built with it. And it also it built Western civilization because Christianity took some elements from Judaism, from the Torah, and it brought them to the West. And look what a wonderful civilization it created. And you have all these evidence and all these uh, things that you can point out to that convince you that the Torah is very rational and then you hold on to it, but you don't realize that it, you think it makes you, it brings you closer 
to a connection with God, but it really preserves you on the realm of human civilization and thinking, and you're just there, and you're stuck there. And God is just as hidden as before, but in a different way. Today, there are many very intelligent, uh, observant Jews who are very confused at the fact that the world is becoming very postmodern, very crazy, uh, and there are all these weird, very rapidly changing, so-called progressive, politically correct notions that are turning everything upside down, and they seem to be leading the world into a kind of craziness that, that you don't know what you know male and female is anymore, and there's this absolute disrespect for everything that you know isn't completely updated to the latest definition of what politically correct is, you know, from the past two years, and then you're completely, you know, unenlightened if you're not completely up to date with the latest, you know, craze of, of what is called today woke. If you're not as exactly woke as you should be, and you're not up to date with the the, the most liberal values, and it's just crazy, and, it, and especially if you're, if you're older than, you know, 20, and you've seen some things in life, and you see that the ideas that you know that, that you are only one year old or two or five years old, you know, you need to wait some time, you know, in order to see if they if they hold. And and then what happens to the, many people are confused by all of this, and they're looking for answers because they feel under attack, and they are under attack, because all these ideas are attacking first and foremost religion, both Christianity and and Judaism, although for some strange re reason not Islam. If you attack Islam, you become an Islamophobe, according to those people. But they do attack uh, Judaism and Christianity all the time. And so anyone who's either Jewish or Christian, or feel un feel, they feel under attack. And then now I'm talking about, uh, about observant Jews, is that they find solace and answers in all these rationalistic writings. They find solace in conservative thinkers. I'm not talking about the conservative in the, in the sense of the uh, religious denomination of conservative Jews, which are very, very progressive and liberal and, and, uh, and woke. I'm talking about conservative versus liberal, conservative thinkers, Republican, you know, uh, voting uh, thinkers that, are, that, uh, that seem to bring back a lot of much-needed sanity to the world. And they're like, sometimes like the child, you know, pointing at the emperor's new clothes and, and saying that they don't exist. And, and there's something very, you know, they bring back sanity. And many observant Jews, they find that, that going along, reading them and, and holding on to them and then rationalizing Judaism using those ideas, it saves their Judaism. It saves their Judaism from the attack by the progressive, left-leaning, postmodern uh, craziness that's that's washing over the world. And and the truth is that it's more complicated than that. That there is a rational element in the Torah, and there is the level that mishpatim. I didn't say this before. This is very basic. But the the, the commandments are divided into three types. You have mishpatim. Edot and Chokim. Mishpatim are the parts that make sense. They're rational. That's why I said this part is the most rational. And then Chokim is the mystical uh, uh, commandments that don't have any explanation to them. 
and adult is something in between that we won't go into now. So the idea is that they, the, the, these people are, are hoping to rationalize the Torah, to turn it all into mishpatim. So the Rebbe and Hasidus is telling them that there is the element does exist, there is a rational element in the Torah, but it's not the highest one, and it's not the one that's at the heart of the Jewish faith and the connection to God. What's at the heart is the it's that you should think about all the mishpatim as chokim, as if they are uh, mystical, as if it's all mystical, obscure, cryptic laws that you're following because because this is God's word. And, it, and even if you can't explain it to other people, and in fact you can't explain it, it's something you can't explain, for you, it needs to be at the heart of things. You know, if you find some rational explanation for something in the Torah, that's great. That's good. We're not negating it in any way. If you if you see that the Torah is sane, that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, you should feel that the Torah is also insane, and that the insanity of the Torah, the irrationality of it, is at the heart of it. At the heart of it is there's something crazy. It's you and God, us and God, going crazy together. And why? Because we're bridging creation and the Creator. It's something crazy. It's something that breaks all the different boundaries and concepts and, you know, boxes. It's the most out-of-the-box thing you can imagine, is accepting the Torah as God's Word. It's crazy. And you need to be aware of this craziness. And if you're, and if you're aware of it, then the inner level, the inner mysteries of the Torah begin to shine. And you can see God's face, so to speak, you know, looking at you through the Torah. And if, if you go in the opposite direction, if you rationalize and rationalize and rationalize the Torah, then God fades away more and more. It becomes this practical tool for creating a good and just civilization, which is a great thing, but it, God isn't there. It just becomes this, this great you know, toolbox for creating a good society, and you can prove it in many, many ways. And show people that the Torah and the Bible, it's all the most rational thing in the world. But then you don't need God. You just need, you just have, it's just you and the book. It's us and the book. That's it. And it cools you down. And before you'll know it, you'll be comparing Judaism to Christianity and saying it's all the same thing. And then you would say all religions are the same thing. And then you would say, well, because really all I need is a good you know, law-abiding civilization, I don't even need the Torah and religion at all. I just need to have some good rational laws to, to keep me, keep us safe. It cools you down until you lose everything. So you need to reverse the, the flow, you know, the tide. And reversing it means that you, you, you can see all the good and rational things in the Torah that make sense. It's great. And it strengthens you and it shows you that the Torah is really creating a good and just and kind world, and it, and it is. But remember always that at the heart of it, it's a mystery, and that it's an infinite wisdom, that even once you understand it, you haven't understood anything. The Baal Shem Tov says, Torah Hashem Tmima Meshivat Nafesh, that the, the Torah is whole, and then it restores your soul. What does it mean, whole? It means that as, although you study it more and more and more, you feel that it's always whole. You never studied anything. Because you, you haven't understood anything. So this is uh, this 
what we're getting out of this parsha. And I promised I'm going to finish with a reincarnation story. I'm going to do it very fast because we're out of time. But there's a story about the Magid of Mezrich, the student of the Baal Shem Tov and future leader of all the Hasidic movement. And he asked the Baal Shem Tov about this parsha. He asked him, why does the Zohar open the first verse of this parsha that talks about the rules, the judgments, the rational commandments, and starts talking about reincarnation? How does it have to do with it? This is a portion about what the courtroom should judge in case of all kinds of human disputes. What on earth is the connection to reincarnation? So the Baal Shem Tov told him, you want to see the answer, you want to get the answer? I can't explain it, I can show it to you. And he told him, go to a certain place in the forest and next to a certain river and hide there and stay there for six hours. Just look and you'll see the answer. So the Magid goes there and he hides behind the tree and he sits and waits. And then he sees one person coming along with, in a carriage. He's a rich guy. He's coming out of the carriage. He sees this river. He wants to take a dip in the river. He takes off his clothes, puts everything, dips in the river, comes out, very happy, puts his clothes back on, goes back to his carriage, goes away, but, oh no, he forgot his wallet. His wallet is laying there with all of his money. Along comes another person. He's not rich. He's a poor person. He's coming along, walking around, and he sees the river. He says, I'm going to stop and I'm going to take a dip in the river. And he takes off his clothes and takes a dip in the river and comes out, puts everything back on again, notices a wallet lying on the ground. Looks around, there's no one to return it to, there's no one, you know, for miles. He can't see the mugget hiding. He says, wow, it's an amazing, you know, uh, fortune. A stroke of luck. Takes the wallet, goes away. Third person comes along, and he's just a guy, and he's walking there, and there are several versions, by the way, one in which he's rich, another in which he's poor. He comes along, and nice, cool river, it's a good place to take a dip, takes a dip, goes out, starts resting. What happens now? The first guy comes back. He realizes he lost his wallet. He comes back, and he finds this guy sort of lying there. And he says, you stole my wallet. He says, no, I didn't. I have no idea where your wallet is. And he's not lying. He has no idea where his wallet is. He says, no, you stole it. You were the only person here. I left the wallet here and it's you. Starts beating him and beating him. And, but eventually he can't find it and he goes. End of, end of scene. And, they, and, they, and the, they, the third guy, who's completely innocent, goes away beaten. You know, aching. So you have one guy who lost his wallet, you have another guy who found a wallet for no reason, and you have a third guy who has nothing to do with the first two people, but he got hit, he got beaten. So the Magid goes back to the Baal Shem Tov and says, what was this all about? So he tells him, I'm going to tell you. In their, all these three people, they knew each other in their previous life. The first two people were business associates, but the first one, who, who was now rich, he cheated the other one out of a considerable sum of money. And, and then they had a big fight about it. And the other person was saying, it belongs to me. But the first one, the cheat, he said, no, it belongs to me. So they went to a judge. And the judge wasn't a good judge. He didn't listen enough. He didn't check enough. He made a wrong ruling. Right? This whole portion is about judgments and rulings and judges and courts. 
but sometimes courts make mistakes. The world isn't rational. It should be, you know, we hope, that we, we pray that it would be rational, but it isn't. And sometimes people make mistakes and we have to, we have to accept, we have to find ways of dealing with the fact that the world isn't rational. So that judge made a big mistake and he ruled in favor of the, the thief, the one who cheated the other guy from his money. So the, the criminal got away with the money and the victim remained poor. So now they had to come back for a new reincarnation and the one who cheated had to lose his money and the one who was, who was cheated, he got his money back. And who was the third guy who got beaten? That was the judge. That was the judge from the, that, that made the wrong ruling. He needed to pay a price as well. So the idea is this. The idea is that we should absolutely strive to maintain a just and rational society. We do need, that's what this whole parsha is about, that's the simple level. It's called Mishpatim, which means the rational commandments, and we need to follow them, and we need to understand them, and then follow them, and all judges should do as much as they can, and work very hard to be very honest, and very precise in the rulings, so that, God forbid, no mistake comes out of their, you know, under their hands. And then, and then, God forbid, you know, the innocent is, is blamed, and the and the um, uh, the guilty is is pardoned, and so that's what we should strive for. However, it also happens in the world, as we all know, that it doesn't work that way, and sometimes injustice is carried out. and And how do we deal with that? And the answer is, and this is the connection between reincarnation. And the portion, the Torah portion that deals with, with rulings and courts is that there is a higher judge who's also in charge of our mistakes and our failings and our disasters and our misfortunes. And, and if we get beaten up for no apparent reason, there is some reason. We don't understand it. We don't, we don't need to, you know, start digging into past lives that we can't see. But we do need to have the simple faith that this happened for a reason. And I don't understand it. It's irrational. It's mystical. But I accept it with love. And with, it's not that I forgive them. Whoever, the, the two elements, you know, they exist at once. Meaning that the person who did the bad thing needs to be punished. But I also need to understand that he was just a messenger, just an emissary. He was just doing what God told him to do. Why? I don't know. I needed, I needed some more humility. And maybe, and if I lose my money now, I'm going to get it in some other time. Today, one of the most important things that the Baal Shem Tov taught us is that what in previous generations took several reincarnations to get through, today we can go through the entire thing in one life. We're reincarnated in one life. So if you lose your money now, God willing, in this life, not in the next one, you can get it back. And if you get beaten up, you'll find the reason in this life. And maybe we should all find a good way of balancing the rational and the irrational, the, the, the things we can understand about the Torah and the things that are mystical and we can understand them. And then we walk both with God and with the Torah and we create a world that's both sane, but at the same time, we are embracing the irrational, insane element of it. And then we can, you know, dance our way through life happily and 
in a good and balanced way. So this is our class for Mishpatim for this week.